It's in a section, these verses, it started last week in verse 27 of chapter 1, of telling us what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? Remember, to be a good citizen of the gospel, what does it look like? And you think Paul would say, pursue personal holiness. We should pursue that. Uh, Pursue being a good steward of your time and talents and resources. We should do that. Or uh, have a devotional life and be connected. We should do that. But that's not where Paul puts the emphasis. He starts with, it's about community. He focuses on community. Last week, stand firm, strive side by side. Community, if we want to live a life worthy of the gospel, there's something about we've got to do this well, and we've got to fight to do it because it's not easy to do. Um, We all know Uh, We all want community, right? It's kind of buzz. We want gospel community. We want to be connected. We want to be known, and we want to know. Uh, But it's hard to do. We see it. We know it when we see it, but you can't really name it. It's kind of elusive. These verses are going to help us, hopefully, get a little closer to what what it is. Gospel community. Different ages, different backgrounds, different circumstances, and yet we want the same thing. And there's something about what Jesus has done that actually makes that happen. So let's look at it. What's the problem in the text? What's the problem with community? Why doesn't it just happen? Why do we not have to strive for it? Why does it not just, we're, we're Christians and then poof, community. We all love each other and everything's one accord and we're singing kumbaya around a bonfire. And there's never any problems because there's a problem with community. Look at, we're going to. Take these not quite in order, but we're going to cover the full text here. Verse 3 says this. Paul says, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Rivalry, often translated selfish ambition. Conceit um, or vain conceit. Verse 4, Look not only to your own interest. Um, Parents, why do you give your kids a command? Because they're not doing something you want them to do, right? <laughs> or, or they're tempted to not do what they're supposed to do. So you give them a command. Don't touch that because they're either touching it or they're about to touch it. And you say, don't. So Paul's doing. The community, something's going on. Paul's in prison in Rome. And he's heard word from Epaphroditus who's brought word to him of what's happening in this church in Philippi, which Paul helped plant. And Paul hears this church that he said in chapter 1, he longs for, he yearns for. Remember, he has this great affection. He gushes over, and yet he's heard that there's discord, and there's a lack of harmony, there's a lack of unity, there's infighting, there's division. And so he's going to give them some commands. He's going to tell them what to do and what not to do. Remember, last week we talked about there was opposition from without. There were forces against the gospel but this week it's inside it's people within the body within the church fighting and dividing with one another we remind you really the whole book covers this whole uh, topic of unity chapter one he says strive side by side for the gospel and what happened in philippi they weren't side by side they were face to face you know they turned on each other here, he's saying, uh, don't be, have rivalry, don't compete, don't be selfish with one another. 
He's going to say a few verses later, uh, don't be complainers. Uh, Don't grumble. And then, of course, in chapter 4, you remember, um, if you've read Philippians before, there's these two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche. Aren't you, aren't you glad you're not them, you know? They, they, made, they made scripture because they were fighting. They didn't. He says, you ladies, y'all need to agree in the Lord. I'm going to write it in holy scripture. This letter is going to be passed around to all the New Testament churches. You know, they're reading in Colossae. Wow, these ladies sure got problems. Paul wrote it in the, book, in the letter here. They're reading it in Corinth, and they're like, man, that's kind of embarrassing. They are eternally in scripture as those who couldn't work it out. They had division. They fought, so Paul writes and says, agree in the Lord. It's a problem with community, and this is our heritage. This is our lineage. This is not a first century problem. It is, so let's, let's remove, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, let's remove the romantic view of the early church like they had it all perfect together, right? They got a lot of problems. <laughs> They're much like us. They're in Christ, and yet they struggle with community. It's hard to come by. We look at two, two, two things, two, two verbs he uses here to talk about the problem of community. He says, do not have any rivalry. Rivalry is a spirit of, of competition. It's about wanting you to win. Some translations say selfish ambition. Um, it's not that ambition's bad. It's that selfish ambition. It's that wanting for you to get ahead, to do things your way is the problem. Verse 4 says, Look not to your own interest, but also the interest of others. Most quarrels and disputes arise out of selfish desire. Listen to these words. James says in chapter 4 of James, Think about this for your family. And then think about this for your workplace. Think about this for our gathering. Just think about this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So right now, what causes fights at work or at home or in the church? James says, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? There's that selfish ambition, the rivalry. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Maybe not physically, maybe. But you murder in your heart. You covet means you want something, maybe something good, maybe something like community. And you do not obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You see that? We have fights. We have fights in our home, with our siblings, with our spouse, in our workplace, in our community, in the church, because we have desires at war within us, because we want what we want. And Paul says, do nothing out of rivalry. And out of that rivalry, out of that desire for what we want, all sorts of sin come, right? That's the sin of we gossip or we slander or we assume the worst of someone else. Um, we boast about ourselves. We, we secretly want someone else in our community not to succeed or at least not to the level that we're succeeding. We hope our business does better than their business. We hope our kids are more better behaved or more godly or something than the other's. We have these things in our hearts, and they spring up because of selfish ambition, a desire for us, for our interest. Boy, that's certainly the culture of our day. Do, not, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain 
conceit. Conceit, uh, in the text, it's a, it's a compound word. It, it's, um, it, it's from the word kenosis, which means empty. Empty, and then doxia, or doxology, praise, right? Or glory, empty glory. Do nothing from vain glory or empty glory. It's basically what he's saying. In other words, we lack glory, and so we try to get glory. So there's problems in community when we're trying to get glory for ourselves. We're trying to get praise. We're trying to get honor for ourselves. Instead of coming to community to love, we come to get. And so we use each other. We manipulate each other. We hurt each other. Augustine said our hearts are restless. We're seeking Calvin said, our hearts are idol-making factors. We're coming up with ways to try to fill the empty space in our lives. Empty glory. Do you, what, do you, what do you do to fill that space in your heart? What do you, what do, you do to try to get glory? Um, for me, I've been a, a sort of a, a praise, a, approval of man addict for years, you know? Longing for the pat on the back, to be recognized, to be applauded. Uh, some of us long to, uh, to, to have status in the community or in our workplace. We want to climb the ladder. We want to be seen. And so it's a, it, there's an emptiness to it. It's vain in that way. And we want to fill it with glory that we try to attain. And when we're doing that in community, well, we can't love, right? Because we're about ourselves. Some of us do it through, through possessions, through our things. We do it through a thousand Different ways. I remember, you remember Johnny Manziel uh, a few years ago, the Heisman Trophy winner. I, I, he was, um, he, you know, he signed a contract with Cleveland Browns, and he had lots of problems as soon as he got there, if you remember. And his, his, his life was just a train wreck. I mean, he was partying, drugs, alcohol. And I remember seeing an interview, you may have seen this with his father, if, if you saw this. And his, his dad said, I, I hope that he goes to jail um, he said it would be the best thing for him. If not, he will be dead by 24. His appetite is insatiable. His longing for glory, his longing to satisfy something within him is insatiable. It cannot be stopped. He's continuing to want to fill it with something. And Paul says... Do nothing from rivalry, selfishness, or, or conceit of filling up yourself so that you feel good or feel satisfied. It's actually not going to work, and it can't give the community what we need. It can't create community. It actually destroys it. Menzel wants glory, but he can't get it outside of Christ. True community cannot exist and cannot thrive by seeking our own glory. What brings these two words together? What brings them together, rivalry and conceit? One commentator says this, What unites rivalry and conceit is a deep desire to have things my way. If we all seek things to ha have things my way, then rivalry and quarreling is the natural outcome. To have true community, we got into the problem. And the problem is really within us. <laughs> it's our own desires are at war. And we, have, we come together not to love, but to get, to puff up, to build, we've got to know, um, we've got to know what our heart's inclination is. 
So what's the call for community? If that's what we tend to do, what are we supposed to do? What's the call, the charge? Look at verse 2. It, it, it's sort of a sequence of events. The, the main command verb is to complete my joy, Paul says. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant or important than ourselves. Um, Paul's basically doing this. You know, there's, there's the chief motivation that we should do things from the love of Christ, but there are secondary motivations in the Scripture, like the fear of God's wrath or fear of consequences. And Paul's basically using a secondary motivation to try to get, he says, listen, you're not agreeing with one another, um, so would you do it for my sake? <laughs> like, you do it for Jesus' sake, but would you fill up my joy by working it out? Maybe you've done this with your kids, you know? Like, listen, Dad's tired, it's been a long day. Could you guys please... Like, yeah, I want them to do it because they love Jesus and they're just like, we're going to love each other. But just for the next few minutes, could you get along because dad needs you to get along? Anybody ever done that? Right? It's a secondary motivation, but it's still a motivation. Paul's saying that to them. Would you, I want you to agree, but would you do it for me? You love me. I know you love me. Y'all can't agree. Do it for my sake and just work it out. Agree in the Lord is what he says. I'm in prison. I may not come, be able to come see you. I'm awaiting my trial. Will I be executed? Will I be free? I don't know. Will you just complete my joy, please? That complete word complete means to fill up. To fill up his joy. It's a, think about a, you know, a gas tank and you've got to fill it up. His, his joy tank is low. Some, some of you may have heard that at a marriage conference. You know, my love tank is low and you've got to fill it up, you know. Fill up the love tank. Well, Paul's joy tank is really is, is struggling a little bit. And Paul's saying, you can help me by filling up my joy tank by agreeing two ways. How do you fill it up? First way, by agreeing or having unity together. Complete my joy by having the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Well, that sounds impossible, right? <laughs> what do you agree? Complete? Is he saying we need to be uniform? Everybody needs to think the same? We're robots, you know? We're like North Korea army, you know? We're all there. We have no personality, no, no voice, and we're just... <laughs> no. Paul says elsewhere in Corinthians we have different gifts, right? We have different abilities. We have different passions. Different... We need to be different. We need to be unique. We're not uniform. But despite the differences... We should share one similar passion, is that unity. We need to have the same mind that we need to come together to be a community and to work it out in the Lord. That Jesus is central, and so therefore we're patient, we're gracious, we're kind, we're pursuing the same goal. We're to have the same mind, think the same thing about what we're after, being in full accord Unity also doesn't, by the way, mean that we are, you know, we stay in, sometimes people use verses like this to, I mean, there's a lot of cults created off of things like this, right? <laughs> to, to follow in line and to not use your brain. Um, it's not uh, to be abused, to be used for abuse or misuse. Um, but in a context where we're in Christ together, he's writing to a church. It's a good church. He's helped plan it. But they're having problems. They're not quite working it out. And in that context, he's saying, listen, guys, come together on what's central. 
be united about what I've done. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Come together in these things and pursue unity. Unity is not a secondary issue for Paul. It is essential. And so I ask you, ask us, what have you done specifically to pursue unity among us? In what ways have you pursued unity? If we're thinking right now, over, he's over there not really doing much. You know? <laughs> I sure wish Kim would uh, pursue unity, you know, or Pete would get together. Or, you know, or always say, what, have, what am I doing to pursue unity right now? Correspondingly, what have I done to maybe bring discord? Where have I not sought the same mind? Where have I sinned and hurting Imagine if we were a community that were asking those questions of ourselves. Boy, that would be healthy, wouldn't it? I would be going out of my way to see about bridging the gap and bringing each other in. So, Paul's joy is going to be filled up if there's unity, but there's a prerequisite to unity. There's something that has to happen for us to have unity, um, and that is humility. Humility, he says, do nothing from robbery or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. <laughs> Think about that. Count others more significant than yourself. Think about it. Think about the barista. Think about the waitress. She's serving you. I consider her more important, more valuable, more significant than myself. The mechanic, the janitor. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a high. Are you sure, Paul? Like, that's kind of unattainable right there. Can you imagine if we did that? Um, it reads easy, not so easy to do. But if we see it, it's beautiful. If you do see hu- humility, it's, it's beautiful, isn't it? I remember, really, the Lord used the humility of two individuals to bring me to the Lord. I was a freshman uh, playing baseball, and, uh, you know, when you were a senior, you didn't have to do anything. You know, I mean, you had to practice, but you didn't have to carry the bats or the balls or load the bus or rake the field or water the field. You just, you know, you're a senior, you're, and you're a freshman, you're doing everything. You know, you're the grunt work, you know, you're being picked on and beat up in the locker room and all kind of stuff. But, um, but there were two guys, they were seniors, one named Will Conway, and one was named Brian Stedman, and uh, Will actually was probably the best player on our team, the best pitcher on our team. And I was a freshman, and I was clueless about life, certainly about Jesus, and uh, I saw those guys serve in humility. They were the ones that were caring, they were the ones that were staying late, helping, they were cleaning up, and I was like, all the other seniors were out, and they were gone, what, what's, what's up with these guys? I saw a humility that I hadn't seen in my circles before. And later on in the year, they would, on road trips, they would talk to me about Jesus. And I was like, yeah, I've seen it. You've lived it. You've, been, you've displayed something I had not seen or known. And God actually used their humility to open my heart to listen to the gospel. I saw it. It's humility serving Jesus, uh, on the night before he's crucified, washes feet. Can you imagine a more humbling thought? The Lord Jesus, the one that spoke and the world existed, knelt down and washed the dirty, nasty feet of a bunch of men. Can you imagine that? It's humility. 
We love it when we see it. It's rare. What is humility? I, I read this week a little bit from a guy named Rankin Wilborn, who I really enjoy, and he was helpful as thinking about this. Humility, it's, it's hard to define. Augustine said three principal virtues in the Christian life. Humility, humility, humility. It's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's humility. Andrew Murray in his book entitled Humility says, Humility is the first duty and the highest virtue and the root of every other virtue. Jesus teaches on humility and almost every parable is getting back to it. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. You may have heard this definition. I'm familiar with this one. Humility is not thinking less of yourselves, but it's thinking of yourself less. Have you heard that? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not self-loathing. But it's actually that you're not on your mind as often. <laughs> you've, it's self-forgetfulness. You've, you've come to a place where you've actually moved beyond yourself. Think about if you haven't. If you come to community and your focus is self, you can't love someone else when your focus is all about you, right? You're there to get. You're there to, to maneuver. You're there to accomplish. You're there for some reason other than to love the other person, which is what we're principally called to do as Christians and so humility there's a a sense in which we're not impressed with ourselves we've moved beyond ourselves but Rankin said something that was new somewhat new for me he says humility is primarily self-knowledge self-knowledge you may know Calvin says, you know, you can't really know God without knowing self, and you can't know self without knowing God. There's an interaction. We're in contrast with one another. And Rankin says that. It's self-knowledge. It's knowing yourself more accurately. Dietrich von Hildebrandt says, humility is the habit of living in the truth. Living in the truth. Humility is living the truth. The truth is really, really about who we are. That we know something right about the world, about ourselves, about God. It means knowing our place before God. What's the truth about ourselves? Bernard of Clairvaux, 11th century, says this. Humility is the virtue by which a man recognizes his own unworthiness because he really knows himself. Think about that. I, my, I have a 10-year-old daughter, and, you know, we're in uh, Target or Walmart, and they're all the little girls' section, you know, pink and stuff, and all the T-shirts are like, superstar, you're the best, and extra special, and like some sassy thing about how awesome we are, right? Make a T-shirt about unworthy. <laughs> I'm not going to sell a lot of those, you know? Not, not real popular culturally. Um... But it's, 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 that's old-fashioned, but, but it's true. And it's not, again, self-loathing. It's accurate. It's honest. Um, it's human. Uh, it, Francis Schaeffer used to say that man is a glorious ruin. So we are special. We're glorious. We're made in the image of God. We have abilities and, and, and capacities as is image bears that are glorious. And so, yes, special, unique. And yet there's ruin. It's been marred. It's been broken. We do things out of conceit and selfish ambition a lot. It's actually our default. And so we 
seek our own. But ruin means we're broken, we're messy, we're sinful. So humility is willing to acknowledge it. It's willing to name it. It's leading with our brokenness and not our dignity. Humility leads with that. So it means, what does it mean for community practically? It means we don't get so offended. You, you don't, we, we, we don't, we don't, when we get criticized, we don't defend ourselves. We don't say, yeah, but what about you? We don't get up in arms. We don't try to validate ourselves. We're free to say, you know what? <laughs> I, like, I found this quote, Stoic philosopher, Epictetus says this, I like this. Let's try this around here. If anyone tells you that a certain person speaks ill of you, do not make excuses about what is said of you, but instead answer, well, he was ignorant of my other faults. Else he would have mentioned those as well. Man, you're pointing the finger at me. You just got the half of it, bro. Keep going. I'll tell you some more. There's There's like an honesty and a freedom to that, isn't there? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm worse than you thought. There's, there's humility there. What's our normal tendency? Well, what have you done? Well, you won't see all the good things I've done. You didn't name those. Defend. What if we create a community of humility? Can we be free in the gospel? To be humble. What a gift that would be. So Paul says, to go to the third and final point briefly, Paul says, the call is for community. We get to, uh, the call is for community. We get community through unity and humility. And if we do those things well, we get joy. So it's probably humility, bend the knee, which brings a sense of a unity, agreeing together in the Lord. And if we do that, our joy is complete. We want to be a joyful church. Let's be humble. And then it brings unity, and then there's joy. There's fruit. Simple enough. How in the world do you do that? Number three, how do you get that? Be humble. <laughs> it's like, okay, didn't work that way. Be united. Look at verse one. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. This is an if-then clause. You know, if-then, you know, if you eat your broccoli, then you can have dessert. You know, if you do your homework, then you can watch TV. If you have any of these things in Christ, then complete my joy. My joy will be complete. Except it's the if part, if any encouragement, if any love, if any, is really more sense. It's a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical device. It's like if I said, would you be happy if you won a million dollars? It's like, well, of course, you didn't have to ask, right? He's not saying if, he's assuming since you have encouragement in Christ, since you have love through God's love, since you have participation in the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, since you have affection and empathy, these are all assumed as part of belonging to Christ, therefore complete my joy by doing, by being united and being humble. So it's really gospel 101. We've been loved. Right? We love because he first loved us. Um, 
We've received encouragement. If you've received encouragement, he says, in Christ. Is it imp- it's impossible to know Christ and not receive encouragement. What's encouragement? It's being instilled with courage and strength that Christ has put his love in you, called you child, called you son and daughter. If that's true of you, now we give encouragement to others. Instead of coming to community to get or to blame or to complain, we come to give encouragement. Or, he says, if there's any comfort from love, whose love is it? It's God's love. It's also love from the community. If we've received the unconditional love of God as sinners, God pursued us, God rescued us, God won us. In our worst moment, His love came to us and we've been rescued. Then complete my joy and just love other people. I mean, they couldn't have done anything worse to you than you've done to God, so the pattern's been set. Unconditional love. He says, uh, if there's any participation in the Spirit, that's koinonia, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, well, what do we have in the Spirit? Let's see. The Spirit of God indwells us, brings us into this relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to one, if there's any fellowship in the Godhead with you, we got involved in that, we got invited into that. If you know something of communion with God, then live in the Spirit with others. What does that mean? What's the Spirit do? He empowers us. Live in community, forgive, work it out, strive together for love because you have the Spirit of God. And finally, if any affection, or any sympathy. If Christ has come to you in tenderness and care, if Christ has brought healing to you, sympathy, the ability to understand. Hebrews says that he can sympathize with us in every way. He actually became a man, was incarnate. He knows suffering. He knows trials. He knows heartache. He knows pain. If you're in Christ, you have a God who knows what you're going through. If you've received any affection from that, then just give it back. Just, you're in the body and you're hurting. Let's move in with care. Let's see one another. Let's see, let's see you struggling. Can I, can I sympathize or empathize? Can I get in your shoes and move towards you? Or I just stay like this, distant? But if you've known, if you've known affection, if you've known the comfort, then you, you, you can't stay right here. You, you come to give. You come to build. You come to be involved. you have this in Christ then complete my joy the first century struggled with division in, in the church and we struggle with it too and it, if we haven't already which we have we will continue to um, but we've been given the resources in Christ to deal with it and so it, it, it requires both an individual application like know what we've been given in Christ and then it requires a corporate a- application to like work really hard together to fight through the ways that we hurt, the ways we pull away, the ways we're aggressive, the ways we're probably more passive-aggressive with each other. We have the resources in Jesus to press in. And we do that, we do that from a place of humility and unity. I mean, there's, Paul is displaying it in a prison cell, having joy, writing to them. 
But we have Jesus. We have the example of Jesus. Next week we'll look at this great Christ hymn. It's amazing. But we have Jesus. He was despised, rejected by the community. We come to community because we want to belong. Jesus was rejected by the community of humanity, both Jew and Gentile. God came to us and we said, oh, we finally can get our hands on God. Let's kill him. Let's exercise him. Let's take him out of community. Let's send him out of the city and let's put him on a cross and let's kill him. And he did it so we can be brothers and sisters in the family of God. And we get hurt. We say, I'm out of this thing. I don't, these people don't love well. I don't, I'm not going back there. I'm going to engage in them. They slighted me. They, they hurt me. Mm. The gospel says, this is what Christ has done. Let's work hard. Let's work well with one another to display humility and unity. And the result will be joy. More joy. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for...